We have filmed three classes and we're getting ready to launch. And so we launch and we have a bunch of press and I'm like so excited and the day happens and our sales are not very good. And I went home and I actually cried because I was like, I've been working on this for years and we are screwed. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talked to David Rogier, founder of Masterclass. Maybe you've seen the ads. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm Samuel L. Jackson. I'm Stephen Curry. I'm Gordon Ramsay. And, and this, this is my, my Masterclass. Masterclass. Masterclass is an online platform where you can learn directing from Martin Scorsese, basketball from Steph Curry, singing from Christina Aguilera, and everything in between from luminaries in their field. Its founder, much like its intended audience, is an avid self-learner who values education above all else. Education is David's way of putting himself in the driver's seat of his life. But as a kid, it didn't always feel like he was behind the wheel. I want to talk about that allergy to peanuts. Like, how did it first come up? The first time I was exposed and I learned that I I was allergic, I, I think I was like two, I was, I think I was two years old and my mom fed me something with peat with nuts in it. And this, and the story is, is I turned like bright red. And so my mom called the doctor. Um, she gave me then a Benadryl and I, I ended up be, ended up being, ended up being fine. And after that, it was just kind of told to me that I was, you know, that I could not eat pe- I could not eat nuts. There was a time in, I think around second grade as well, it was a kid's birthday in the class and they had like treats. And then I said, I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna have any because I was afraid of nuts. And at the time, food allergies were like not a known thing. So my teacher was like, you are choosing not to not to not have the dessert because you want to go out and play faster than everybody else. And I was like, no, like, I really can't eat this. And she's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> and she made me stay in for the whole recess afterwards because she thought I was trying to, like, <laughs> hustle the system, um, which I was really just trying not to die. I feel like having a peanut allergy as a kid makes your parents more protective. Was that the case for you? I don't think they were more protective because it was still not like a big or known thing. So we just kind of avoid avoided it. I think it, it made me understand that life is more fragile. And then that other characteristic, stuttering, when did you realize that it was a thing? The first time I was conscious of it must have been in like kindergarten or first grade. I think probably being teased about it from kids. David grew up with two afflictions that were A, outside of his control, and B, especially hard to deal with as a kid. First, there was his peanut allergy. This might not seem like that big of a deal, but just think about how this changed his day-to-day life. As a kid, you're supposed to live carefree. 
But when even the adults in your life can't save you from potentially deadly snacks, I think that would put you on edge. And as for the stutter, kids can be cruel. A speech impediment gives more than enough ammunition for insult. At most, he could try to mitigate these afflictions, but ultimately, they were here to stay. But even when the circumstances of life stripped agency away from him, he snatched it back with the help of some tough love from his family. Did you feel like you had people that you could talk to that would be sympathetic about like these plights of childhood? It wasn't something our family talked about. I remember going to my grandfather, who was a Holocaust or fought, you know, who 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 was in Auschwitz. The women are able to smile for the first time in years. The barbarous treatment these people received in the German concentration camps is almost unbelievable. They see the woodshed where lime-covered bodies are stacked in layers, and the stench is overpowering. And I remember telling him, "I'm being teased at school for it." And I remember, I mean, like, I would literally get a hug from him, and he would then go, so what? Because to him, that was nothing, right? And so I think my family's approach was his approach, which was like, we will give you a hug, and we are here, we are here to help, but you cannot let this stop you. I do stutter. It was much worse as a kid, but um, it also builds empathy because you realize how hard it is to express yourself, how frustrating that can be at times. Um, You can be teased for it or people can focus their attention on how you're saying it rather than like the actual words you're saying. And so I think it also – I think lots of empathy. David was on the outside looking in. He was ostracized by his classmates. But in the distance created by his peers, empathy grew. He could empathize with the pain felt by others because he had felt it himself. David pairs this empathy with a readily lent ear. He absorbs the information around him by listening, like really paying attention. Part of listening is employing empathy, trying to understand another's point of view. Walking a mile in their shoes, steeping your brain in another's mindset. In addition to empathy, unusual interest grew as David explored himself outside the social circles of his peers. His passions quickly turned to business, and this passion was encouraged by his mom. I remember as a kid, you know, I would create a like fake bank. And like I would run a little bank in my bedroom and my brother, I asked to come in to be a customer, you know, to, pre- to pretend to interact. And I remember once my mom came into my fake bank, right, to play with us. And my brother, I think my brother and I were like working behind the like fake cap, the fake desk. Fake counter. And my mom starts to pretend to want to, you know, deposit money or something. And she pulls out a toy gun and says, I'm robbing this bank. Something went wrong. Get out. And my brother and I were, like, shocked. Police department, I want to report a holdup. And at the same time, we're like, our mom is awesome. 
I mean, she's we have a fake bank and she's being a fake robber of that bank. Oh my God, Andrew and I had not thought about a secure a secure a security guard. So Andrew, who's my brother, who's great, I told him his job was to be the security guard, right? And so then Andrew then you know took another toy gun and pretended to guard everything. But it was always, you know, this idea to start things and it was always a part of our household. David's mom flipped the script. Here he was thinking that he had all the rules thought out and accounted for. He was the banker and he dealt out the money. Suddenly, and rather amusingly, David's life as a novice banker was complicated by a robber that was none other than his mother. This unpredictability, this creativity, this refusal to accept the norm or the status quo seems to be the theme of this story and the lesson that his mom was teaching him. David listened and incorporated this lesson into his life and his next endeavor. He expanded his entrepreneurial interests out of fake banks and worked on a tangible tool, a search engine. One of my closest friends as a kid is, is Eric Wolf. Eric Wolf and I began a search engine when us two were teenagers called The Brain. Search at the time still sucked. I mean, this was in the days of like Alta Vista and Excite, right? And so our idea was, our intuition was that search was going to be kind of more niche based. So, you know, for, you know, sports, you would have a search engine. If you were an entrepreneur, you would have a search engine and kind of more field based. So we started one that was more about tech things. After a while, um, and I, you know, still a teenager, um, some 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 guy came and said, "I want to buy it." And we were like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" I can't remember the exact amount, but we're talking about like six hundred dollars. But at the time, that was a tremendous amount of money. I mean, six hundred bucks. I didn't have a I don't have a job, right? I mean, it was so that was tons of money. And more than that, I feel like it's validation that your pursuits were worthwhile and lauded beyond the two of you working on it. Like you actually had an outside source saying this is valuable and what you had worked on is valuable. And and, and just the fact that the questions that this person asked when they wanted to buy, right? I mean, it just started to make us, you know, it just exposed us to this is how this works, at least in in an exceptionally small way. David tasted success, even if it was only a small win. Actually, scratch that. It was a huge win. $600 might not seem like much money, but for a seasoned business professional to vet, deliberate, and buy a business from a couple of prepubescent teens paid dividends in terms of experience. David proved he could create a working product and then sell that product. Although he sometimes had trouble getting through a sentence, he had no trouble communicating value. Again, we return to one of the themes of David's life. David could communicate value effectively because he listened with intention. To listen with intention is to listen with empathy. And empathy was multi-generationally cultivated within the family unit. Though David's parents imparted important life lessons, it was the stories of his grandparents that put David's life into perspective. His grandparents had experienced true and complete suffering. I was raised by both my, you know, by, you know, my grand, by my parents, but also by my grandparents who saw evil in the world and saw a lot of it. 
and had very difficult lives and half of the folks that they knew were killed in the Holocaust. Some people believe that the reports of what happened there are exaggerated. No words could exaggerate. We saw and we know. So I was raised with this understanding that evil exists in the world. I took from that that I need to like appreciate every single day because I don't know when that can occur. I don't want to be in my deathbed and have not tried to make the world a bit be- a bit better. And so I think in you know at high school and college, how I interpret that was into pu- I should go to you know to run for to you know to run or work in politics. Um, and part of that was saying, hey, if I can have a discussion forum with people about polit- about things happening in the world, that's just going to help. That's just going to help too. So I think it was all in this idea of how do I make the world a bit be- a bit better. David called that discussion forum 23 minutes, and he frames the show in an interesting way to make the world a better place. For David, the end goal of education, of exchanging ideas in a public forum, is bettering the world. It's empathy in practice. From his grandparents' testimony, he knew the world could be full of evil. But how did he arrive at education as the answer to society's ills? His grandmother would give him a lesson he would never forget. I feel college was an especially important moment for you and especially in your relationship with your grandmother. I know her aspirations of going to medical school. And so there was a lot of weight obviously put on that degree. So can you talk about your relationship with your grandmother in relation to education? I mean, she is my hero. So I was, you know, raised in part by her. You know, my 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 folks both worked. Um, so after school, I would go to, I would stay with her. And so I remember one time, I think I was in second grade, went to her house after school one day. I was complaining about all the math homework I had, which obviously, like, I didn't have a lot. And um, she tells me that she has a story that she wants to tell me. So, um, which is like the last thing that you want to hear when you're eight years old. So my grandma tells me the sto- this story. So she was 16 years old. Live. She was living in Krakow, um, in you know, in Eastern Europe. Her and her mom went on a family vacation. Dad's gonna join. Stays home a couple extra days to finish some work. While they're on vacation, the um, the Nazis invaded. Um, they took everything and they killed her father. My grandmother and her mom flee to new to they flee to New York City. Only job they're able to get is in a factory floor. They are working side by side. My grandma wants to become a doctor. She finds every medical school in the state of New York, applies to them all by hand. I think it was over twenty five schools. She got a no from every single one. Her and her mom keep working the factory. She applies again next year, gets a no from every single one. Starts calling the deans of admissions and asking, why am I not get it, get it? Why, why, how come I keep hearing no? They all hang up on her, except for this one guy. And you can say he's nice or you can say that he's an ass. And he says, I'll be honest, you have three strikes against you. You are a woman, an immigrant, and you're Jewish. 
hangs up the phone. My grandma hears that and says, I'm, st I'm still doing this. Keeps working the factory, applies again the next year, and she gets into one school and becomes a pediatrician. And I remember hearing the story, and I'm staring at her, Sam, because this is intense stuff to be hearing from just having complained about math homework. And my grandma tells me, David, the point I'm trying to make to you is education's the only thing that someone can't take away from you. And I just never, I never forgot that. And so I think all throughout my education, especially in college, undergrad, it, it, it was so important to me. And the part that was important to me that ended up, I think I learned a lot, but was not good for my grades, is I was optimizing not for a grade in the class. It was for when I'm going to learn the most. And so I got very frustrated and I'm sure I was a pain in the ass if I was in a class and I thought I wasn't learning and it was just about doing for the grade or just about to, to, to actually do work. But I think in undergrad, my view of the world changed. Education is the only thing that someone can't take away from you. Those close brushes with a deadly food allergy couldn't take it away. Those bullies teasing him for stuttering couldn't take it away. While David felt a lack of control over his diet and speech, he could be the master of his education. After all, if his grandmother could overcome the triple whammy of being a Jewish immigrant woman applying for med school during the mid-century, then what was his excuse? He could absolutely gain agency via education. But it would take initiative, much like his grandma's repeated college applications. So he sought out education on his own accord. Waiting for instruction wasn't in the lesson plan. I was at Stanford and I was trying to think early on, how do I take advantage of the time I have here? It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's only two years. How do I take advantage of it? And one of the people I went out and asked for advice on this was a guy by the name of Tristan Walker. His, his name is Tristan Walker. And Tristan's advice, which was so great, was use Stanford to meet the people that you can learn the most from. And I was like, okay, that sounds great, but like how? So Tristan told me this amazing story where at the time uh, the hot startup was a company called Foursquare and he really wanted to work there. So he like sends a note to the CEO. He's not hearing anything back. So he's like, screw this. I'm just going to start to bring them deals. So he goes out to people and starts saying, hey, I am a student at Stanford. You know, I am a student, um, but there's this there's this great thing called Foursquare. Are you interested in it? And he got three big companies interested to buy ads on Foursquare. He then sent an email back to the CEO and was like, look, I have deals for you. And the CEO was like, who are you? Like, I want to meet you. 
Um, he ended up to meet Tristan and he ended up giving him a job and he climbed up the ranks of Foursquare. So I heard this, I was like, oh my God, okay. Like, all right, this is the bar that I can, this is how it's done. So I like made a list and of who are the people I want to meet? And I figure out what is it that I could bring them or help them on that was going to make them want to meet. And I realized one of the things was that like, oftentimes people who have achieved things or, you know, are working really hard, love to talk to students. And also, it's a prestige thing to be able to be invited to come speak at Stanford. So I just invited a bunch of people to come speak. And it was like a speaker series. Um, it was open to anybody who wanted to come. And then I would ask to go out to lunch with them at, you know, you know, around the speaker series. So I think I did close to 100 speakers, a range of folks. And it was things I wanted to learn about, things I didn't know about, things, you know, I want people I wanted to actually meet. And then in that same vein, I was like looking at who are the speakers are come are 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 coming to speak at Stanford. And one of them I saw one day was Mike was this guy by the name of Michael Deering. And I looked him up and he was like an entrepreneur, um, one, uh, you know, was a huge exec at e at eBay, then started his own fund, has done incredibly, exceptionally well. So I was like, this, th this guy sounds great. So I arranged time to meet with him and we chatted and he's just like a super smart guy. I mean, just a super smart guy. And us who clicked, he then actually decided to teach a class at Stanford. Um, I took that class. And then at the end of the school year, um, I was asking for a bunch of job advice and career advice. And I went to him and I was like, hey, Michael, I think I found my next job. And he's like, oh, great, what? I was like, well, I think it involves you. And he's like, uh-oh. And I was like, what if I come work for you and I'll glad to help you invest in companies, do the work you need, but and then also think of my own ideas. And he goes, deal. That's incredible. Again, like the power of cold outreach, which has seemed to be how you've built your career. I, I, I think the the thing about cold outreach, you never want to be cold, right? So if you can get it not be cold, that's way better. Two is you have to do cold. You you have to put yourself in the shoes of that person. What 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 kind of things can can you do that are going to appeal to them? That are going to help them? Um, so to lead with trying to help them instead of just saying I want something from you. Listen to what he said. You have to put yourself in the shoes of that person. Even his emails were empathetic. And that empathy and attention to detail is what attracted David's next mentor. For David, the best learning comes from direct one-on-one -on -one mentorship and collaboration. That's how it worked with his mom and his grandparents and his childhood friend Eric and the speakers he would bring to the Stanford campus. Next up, Michael Deering. His first thought was, what can I do for Michael rather than what can Michael do for me? This empathetic approach was rewarded. Michael saw something in David. He saw a cognitive bias, which is actually a good thing. So it, it seems like your relationship with Michael was blossoming. What do you think you did while you were working for him and even before that, like that made him see something in you? And what do you think he saw in you? So he has this approach that great entrepreneurs have one of four or five cognitive biases and there's all different ones. And I think the one I have 
is called personal exceptionalism. Personal exceptionalism does not mean that I am personally exceptional. Personal exceptionalism means I believe I can do exceptional things. It's this belief that people have that I can do things that other people maybe said are way too hard or cannot be done or impossible to be done. Things that other people see as hard, you are like, I can do that. I think that's the one I have. Now, that's a nice way to say it. It's a cognitive bias. You can also say it is a messed up view of your own abilities or of the world or something like this. But it's a really interesting idea to think about that entrepreneurs see the world in some way that other people don't. And there's lots of different ways that people fit in this. One is there's certain people that have a certain view of the world. I think Steve Jobs was one of the people that was like, I see the world in this certain way and I know it's going to get there, so I'm going to drive it there. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. That was the voice of Steve Jobs in an Apple commercial. And I think it relates perfectly to that cognitive bias held by David. David's near delusional belief in personal exceptionalism, in believing he could do what others couldn't, sounds on the surface egotistical, but I think it's actually closer to him recognizing and fulfilling authentic purpose. The recognition of authentic purpose was recognizing that he is the best person to complete the task at hand. He was called by something higher than himself. Maybe it's his values or his God or the universe. Whatever was guiding him, it made him think he was in a league with the Silicon Valley juggernauts that revolutionized the world with their visions. He was playing in the same field as Steve Jobs. He wanted to see his vision brought to life. He wanted to leave a stamp on this world. He had learned a ton from Michael, but he was ready for the next step, to pursue entrepreneurship. Just as he was about to walk out the door, Michael proposed something rather interesting. We'll be right back after this break. I've been itching to travel, but there are two things getting in my way. Traveling is expensive, and we are in the middle of the largest pandemic the world has ever seen. But that didn't stop me from living out our travel fantasy and trying to save some money in that fantasy by calling Amtrak and saying, can I share a seat with my friend? Hello, I was wondering if there are seats that could be shared. Seats that could be shared? Yeah, like, could I share a seat with a, a friend? I'm trying to understand. You, you, want to, you want two people to sit in one seat? There's no such thing as seat sharing. Right, so like, like my friend couldn't sit on top of me or anything like that during the ride. Uh, unfortunately, no. Your friend could not sit on top of you during the ride. No. Uh, 
Man, I, I wish sharing a seat was as easy as sharing a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can share a podcast really easily. You could share uh, Finding Founders by screenshotting it or putting on Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram story. Gotcha. But I mean, they will let you sit next to each other. You know, I feel like I... It's just I, not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. Gotcha. Like, I mean, like, you guys can get pretty close to each other, you know, lean on each other, lay on each other, stuff like that, but... But you know what's never an issue? Sharing this podcast. Take a screenshot of this episode, tag at Finding Founders Podcast, and post to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars. Now, back to the podcast. I went to him and said, hey, Michael, thanks so much. This was an amazing opportunity, but I want to go start something. And I miss that. And I want to create. And I want to build. And he says, what are you going to start? And I said, I don't know yet. Why do I work on a bunch of ideas and you fund me on it? He's like, deal. I was thrilled and so, so grateful. I was also, ah, I was terrified. I mean, how many other times in my life was... A great investor gonna fund me some money and tell me to go, I mean, basically just think of an idea. It's a once in a lifetime chance and I didn't wanna mess that up. And there's no rule book of how to pick your idea, right? So what was the set of constraints that you set for yourself to whittle down to an idea that actually could be impactful? Cause you, again, you had this mission statement of, I want to impact the world. I think picking constraints is one of the most important things and one of the things that really helped me the most. So one is pick a market that is growing. If the pie is getting bigger, it's easier than the pie shrinking, right? So that was one. Two was choose something that even if it fails, you are going to be proud of it. That to me was an amazing constraint. Three for me was just something that it's got to excite me. If this works, I'm going to devote decades of my life to. So it's got to be something that's going to rock my. It's going to rock my. It's going to rock my world. David wanted to build a company that rocked his world. With no tangible idea in sight, he jumped from a stable plane into the uncertain world of entrepreneurship. But he had a parachute somewhat guiding his fall. The constraints that he created allowed him to plunge into entrepreneurship in a way that guaranteed success. This might not make sense or seem ridiculously optimistic, but it isn't. Let's revisit two of the constraints for the idea. It had to be exciting and something that he would be proud of even if it failed. These constraints reframe David's entrepreneurial journey. If he's excited by the idea and proud of it, regardless of its conventional success, David would be successful as soon as he pursued the idea. Success isn't a destination. It's a love of the process. It's seeing beauty in the journey. These constraints fostered a mindset of success. And with that mindset, he started brainstorm ideas. Hey 
Every year, up to 2,000 people in the U.S. and Canada die from anaphylaxis, a serious allergic reaction. The most common causes are allergies to peanuts, insect bites, and seafood. But not all One idea was inspired by my father, which was, you cannot eat nuts, and you're going to die if you have nuts. How awesome would it be if you could like wave a wand over food and it would turn red if there are nuts in there? At first, I'm like, that's crazy, Dad. You can't do that. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to actually think about this a little bit. And I started talking to friends and experts I reached out to. And you started realizing, well, there is some tech that if something touches that wand, it can turn red if there is nuts in there. And so I started going deep on this. And I found a friend who's really good at this stuff. And we started kind of exploring this. Uh, we set up in my kitchen, like a laboratory, testing all different types of food and what things could you detect and not detect. The issue we got to was it worked about 80% of the time. The problem is you die the other 20%. And one of the rules of my constraints was to be something I'd be proud of. And if I was wrong 20% of the time, I'm not going to be proud of that. Um, and so we decided to not do that. The other idea, I posted an ad on Craigslist, um, all different farm towns up in the state, offered to pay people 8 to 12 bucks just to talk to them about their education. Because, you know, I want to talk to people that were not like me. And I spoke to a bunch of people on the phone, um, all different walks of life, all different types of educational journeys and paths. And the stuff you hear just like pisses you off. I mean, people being ripped off on their education. You know, I talked to somebody in Fresno, I believe. She paid to take a receptionist uh, school thing uh, to help her in her career. So what was that training? For two weeks, she worked in an office and answered phones. That is not paying for education. That is like a scam, right? Somebody wanting free slave labor, right? And one thing I saw is people will invest a tremendous amount and care so much about their education and growth, but often make bad, make bad choices on it. I didn't know it happened as much in the professional skills and also just in the like in the pursuit of things that you love to take classes on, you know, in acting classes and photography classes. So I got all this and I started to mock stuff up. So I mock stuff up, all different screens. I'd put it in front of folks, ask them how they respond and react. And I think one of the things when you mock stuff up and put it in front of people, which I think is a great tool to use, is if people are like, oh yeah, I think that's cool, that's a bad sign. The person has to be like, that is awesome. Like, I want to pay for that. That is a yes. <laughs> you were doing a ton of testing. Was there an aha moment in that attesting? Was there one particular interview that was like, wait, this is the idea. I'm onto something. Yes. So one of the other ideas I had in the background trying to test early on was for small rests to help them source and order food. 
looked up Yelp. I sent emails to different restaurant owners. I'd bring in mocks with them. And I remember one guy, I brought in mocks uh, for him, and I had this idea of going on at the same time. You know, maybe it was my third time of seeing him. And the question I always ask at the end of like a qual interview is if you would buy this, right? Ask them if they would buy this. And for the first two sessions when I presented him stuff, the guy was like, no. And the third time I showed him, I asked him, okay, I've changed all the stuff in the mock. Would you now buy this? He's like, I would. And I, I was so excited because like maybe this idea works. I was like, why? And he's like, well, I just feel bad for you now. Oh my God, that is not going to work. And so he asked, he asked me what other ideas I had. And I showed him a mock-up of this other idea of online classes from the best in the world. And he's like, that is awesome. Why don't you do that idea? And I was like, there was something that just clicked in me that I was like, I got to turn off all the other stuff and just drive on this. Something clicked within David. And in my reflection of his choice, it kind of seemed obvious to me. Sure, the nut allergy idea solved a real problem David had experienced since childhood. But there was something else that played a more important role in the development of his purpose. Education. Education had been a core tenant of his life since hearing his grandmother's stories as a child. When the restaurant owner became excited about the education product, I imagine that his grandmother's words echoed in his mind. Is education the only thing that someone can't take away from? That advice stayed with him. David knew there was a gap in the education market, and he was determined to seize that opportunity. He found his purpose, his ticket to impact. He was going to make equal access to quality education a reality. For him, education was not a luxury, but a right. And with that, Masterclass was born. But turning his idea into reality proved to be more difficult than he initially thought. So you have this idea. Can we make it possible for anybody to learn from the best? Imagine if you have classes from, you know, these, these amazing folks at prices that aren't that expensive. Probably took me eight months to get like the first yes or something, right? And that and those were dark eight months. You know, starting an idea, picking an idea is, is a really hard stage because anybody you share that idea with, somebody will be like, well, yeah, I just don't know about that. Or have you, thought, have you thought about this? I mean, everybody has an opinion about why it's not going to work. And that, and it's so fragile at the beginning, right? And that's so, and you are fragile at the beginning. It's really hard to hear. Put that on top of for eight months, I couldn't sign one of these people. So, I mean, every week you're talking to somebody, somebody's like, why are you still working on this? Or like, how much longer are you going to give this? You know, I have this belief inside me that if I can just get like the first one to say yes, it will be this flywheel, right? And a cold email, I cold called. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. One of the most helpful things was trying to get the best in the world was how do I make them trust that I'm going to do them right? 
that I'm going to make a class that they're going to be proud of, that they care a tremendous amount about also, you know, they want anything that they do to actually be great. And, and I'm just a kid that hasn't produced anything except a TV show in undergrad that I don't want them to see because it looks really bad, right? And so how do I do this? And in part what I realize is, okay, what other th- – who else can I surround myself with that they're going to trust? So one of the people that joined on board to help just as to advise very early on was this guy by the name of Jay Roach. Jay Roach, if you haven't read about him or you heard him speak, he's an amazing guy. He's like the 25th most grossing film director of all, of all time. Everything from Meet the Parents. Are you a pothead fucker? Austin Powers. Yeah, baby. Yeah. And he's a really nice guy and a really smart guy. And we got connected. I found somebody who knew, who knew somebody. And so he is easier to get to compared to, you know, a Martin Scorsese. And so I got some time with Jay. We ended up having some friends in common. And you realize, oh, my God, Jay, I mean, Jay, Jay is a master. And if I can get his help, that would really help. And Jay, you know, believes a lot in education and spent a lot of time trying to help education. And so, you know, I got him to advise us. Well, all of a sudden, that's somebody, when I, when I reach out to these people, you know, these really high-profile names, a bunch of them have either worked for Jay, worked with Jay, admire Jay. And so, you know, it was folks like that that you could start to bring in that just increased trust. So what was the first dividend from this new relationship that you had fostered? Jay introed us to different agencies and managers, and all of a sudden I wasn't laughed out of the room, <laughs> right? Around the same time, got Michael Bloomberg's fund to invest in the idea. Well, all of a sudden I could say, here's another name that people trust, right? You know, so it was just starting to build, you know, all those bricks of trust. Because of Jay, David was now one degree of separation from the celebrities he had been cold emailing. And suddenly, those cold emails weren't so cold. Jay's endorsement seemed to come just in time because eight long months of emailing into the void, hoping for a response, yet coming up empty-handed, that's demoralizing. David had to have incredible resilience to be able to get through those months. And that resilience was about to pay off. I cold emailed everybody, every email I could find for James Patterson. He sold the most books, I think, out of any anybody alive in the United States. And then one day, walking in like an outdoor mall down in Los Angeles, I kid you not. I get a call on my phone from a number that I do not that I did not know who it was. This was a time before we got like tons of spam calls. So like I actually answered it and I was like, hi, this is David. And he's like, hi, this is James Patterson. And I was, I mean, I was like, I literally was so unsmooth. I was like, the author? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I'm, 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 I'm really surprised to hear from you. He's like, I am a surprising guy. 
I was like, okay, how can I help you? He's like, I saw the proposal. If timing works, I would love to talk to you about actually doing this class. I was like, you saw the proposal? And he's like, yeah, you sent, you, you, you sent a cold email and got from this person, this person to me. And then in my head, I'm like, how do I know this is really James Patterson? I mean, like, I don't know what he sounds like. I've read a bunch of his books, but I don't know what he sounds like. And then he connected us to his law firm, which is a big law firm and everything. But that is how we started Got James Patterson. I'm James Patterson. This is my masterclass. Those bricks of trust were slowly but surely becoming a tower. And it was this trust paired with David's continual hustle that landed him his first master. Like David said, all he needed was one yes. Ever since he hatched the idea of masterclass, he was hellbent on its success, partly because it was a great idea and partly because of his personal exceptionalism of that cognitive bias. James Patterson's interest in masterclass further cemented this personal exceptionalism. David was sure that masterclass had the roadmap to success. You had secured your first teacher. So I, I imagine it kind of snowballed after that. I know that also that launch, there was a lot of worry that first day. Can you talk about everything that led up to your launch? So 2015, it's May. We have filmed three classes and we're getting ready to launch. I now have a small team, right, of folks. I remember one guy on our marketing team brings me as a gift a phone charger, like an extra external phone charger. He's like, your phone, like now it's gonna be out there in the world, your phone's gonna blow up. And I think this is like a thing like a, a, of entrepreneurs. We think the thing we're working on is the most, the coolest thing in the entire world and everybody's gonna care about it, right? And it's gonna break through and break the internet and everything. And so we launch and we have a bunch of press and I'm like so excited and day happens and our sales are not very good. And I went home and, and, uh, and I actually cried because I was like, I've been working on this for years. I put my name and my neck on the line with some of the biggest people on the planet, raise this money once in a lifetime chance, and we are screwed. And I remember I called my pet, my, my mom, my dad, and you know, they, you know, it was important to put on a brave face at the work and you're going to figure it out and go back to the office the next day. Um, and I see someone on the marketing team, um, and he has a big smile on his face. And I was like, Reed, what, what, tell me what's going on. He's like, this is going to be a big business. Have you seen the CACs that we are getting on the marketing side? We can blow this up just from the ad side. And then that next day, our sales were above our first day. And say, sales just kept growing. On the first day, they were doomed. But on the second day, they were well on their way to disrupting the education industry. It seems crazy that in the span of a day, a business can seem to go from massive failure to massive success. I think in the moment where David felt the world closing in on him, felt that his company was doomed, that's the moment he forgot something. He forgot the constraints he started with. He forgot to love the process. If you love the process, there's no reason to despair. You are already successful. 
And it was hard for David because the hardest time to love the process is when you are focused on quantitative metrics of growth. When you start tracking the numbers, it shifts focus away from the reasons you started the company in the first place. David didn't start Masterclass to track sales. He started it to change lives. But it's easy to get caught in the weeds when you were in those initial stages of growth. But now, Masterclass seems to have burst through the weeds and is basking in the rays of the sun. Masterclass is poised for growth and impact. Since that launch, where is Masterclass now? We've raised now about 235 million um, in fundraising. We have you know, 250 employees. But most important to me is impact. You know, a fifth of our students say that we changed their life. If you were to give advice to a young entrepreneur, what would that advice be? Pick something that you're going to be proud of, even if it fails. Number two, when you come up with an idea that other people say is impossible, chase that. And number three, get a therapist. You are crazy as an entrepreneur if you feel you can go all the ups and downs without a great support system. And you can have a great spouse, you can have great friends, you can have a great family, but like a therapist who's trained in this and that's their job is a crazy thing to not at least try. Impact. That was David's life goal. Growing up in a Jewish family that overcame adversity through the pursuit of education, David was taught to not take anything for granted. Even when it seemed like the world was against him, he continued in his relentless pursuit to thrive. Whether it was overcoming a speech impediment or sending out countless cold emails, David was persistent. If insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, then David definitely straddled the line. However, his obsession to create impact paid off. He's found success in consistency. Like David said, entrepreneurs see the world in a different light. They believe that change starts with an individual. Entrepreneurs are not passive bystanders. They are champions of change. At the end of the day, David didn't care about the dollar signs. He cared about how his business made him feel. And he's proud that he is able to change people's lives through education in the same way education helped change his life. Harking back to his grandmother's words, education is the only thing that someone can't take away from you. No one can take away David's education, his resilience, or his passion for impact. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahesh Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, 
Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week. Thank you.